People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon, welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. I wonder if you've seen... Prokofiev's magnificent ballet, Romeo and Juliet, which is on here at the Artscape Opera House, and which has got rave reviews, not the least of which was for the orchestra, the Cape Town Philharmonic on top form, under the conductor Jonathan Lowe, who's my guest today. Jonathan has been hailed by Dance Europe as without doubt the greatest ballet conductor we have in the UK. Hong Kong-born Britain, Jonathan Lowe is music director of Northern Ballet, staff conductor for the Royal Ballet at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, and principal conductor of the new Bristol Sinfonia. He was principal conductor of the Xiang Symphony Orchestra in 2015 to 2019, and he was a member of the Jetty Parker Young Artist Program at the Royal Opera House and a conducting fellow with Birmingham Royal Ballet, for whom he is a regular guest conductor. So, as you can imagine, he's increasingly sought after by ballet companies around the world, and we've got him right here in Cape Town. Jonathan, welcome. It's good to see you, and it's good to speak to you, and it's good to have heard you in the pit as well. Welcome. Pleasure to be here, Rodney. Thank you for having me. When you heard that you had an invitation to Cape Town, what was the first thought that flitted through your mind, do you think? My first thought was, what an exciting opportunity, not least to work with such a fantastic orchestra and company, but to be in such a beautiful city and to experience all that Cape Town and the surroundings have to offer, jumped at the opportunity. Have you been here before? No, this is my first time, indeed my first time in the African continent. Oh, right, and you're right at the tip, the southern tip. Yeah, very much so. We had a chance to head down the Cape um, over the last weekend in the very little time that we had allowed mm-hmm. on day release away from studio rehearsals, and all-inspiring is an understatement, almost. Okay. It really was um, truly stunning scenery. We saw some beautiful wildlife, and everywhere we turned, we received such warm and heartfelt, friendly welcome from the people. So I've had a great time so far. Well, I hope you're going to come back after that little rave about Cape Town sometime. I do hope so. I think that may have <laughs> been the, 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 the opening fire of uh, hoping for reinvitation. But let's <laughs> just talk about Romeo and Jill because you said the marvellous orchestra, and that's very kind of you to said that. We're very proud of our Cape Town Philharmonic. And as often with orchestras, I'm sure you know, it very much depends on the conductor as to how they perform. And it's sounding great in the pit I was in just this week, and it really sounds amazing because it is a very tricky score, isn't it, basically, for the orchestra and for the conductor? It is indeed, and for an orchestra that has a life outside of the pit and doesn't Mm. play in ballet exclusively, it's all the more difficult for the overarching pacing, the shape of the ballet. Of course, orchestras like the Cape Town Philharmonic, a really fine orchestra that has a concert life, they'll be very familiar with those concert pieces drawn from the suites. Um, 
but to play the ballet in one sweep with the changes in tempi, with the changes in moods, and with the changing colour and harmonic language, it really has been a challenge and an enjoyable one、um, to get us all into the shape that we are now. <laughs> and great shape it is. Have you conducted Romeo and Juliet before? I have.、Um, I've done. I've had the good fortune of、um, having done this piece a few times.、Uh, most recently at the Roller House,、um, mm-hmm. where I did my、um, first Romeo and Juliet cinema screening. Um, oh, so it it has it has been a really I, I don't know it, it seems to be a piece that has followed me around a little bit,、mm-hmm. um, but there are worse pieces to follow you、Absolutely. around. <laughs> but I'm glad that you do like the score because some people say it's the best ballet score after Tchaikovsky, because as we said, virtuoso, but also very Prokofiev, edgy. And、um, uncomfortable at times, but so romantic when he wants to be. Yes, and it's interesting when you speak to both、um, ballet people, dancers, ballet staff, and, and speak to orchestras about、um, the two main Prokofiev、uh, ballet scores, of course, Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella.、Mm. And like you say, the Prokofiev, is, the, the Romeo and Juliet, is full of romantic tunes and really interesting orchestrations、yes. that, that that brings out little moments that. It enhances the harmony and the gut-wrenching music of the moments.、Mm. Um, so, for example, at the end of Act One, with the balcony pardieu,、um, you recognise the tunes, you recognise the soaring cornet and the violins,、mm-hmm. but it's for me, it's the little nuance, the details, the bass drum, for example, where at the really crucial moments, where the climaxes are arrived at. You feel that vibration、mm. that not only says this is the moment of climax, but also not all is well. That something is not not going to end well for this couple, <laughs> and it's interesting to point out that per- percussion element、um, of the score because when Prokofiev first wrote it and it was in rehearsals in the theatre,、um, there's this famous story of the ballerina going to Prokofiev, the composer, and say. Actually, Maestro, I really can't hear this music. I don't hear it loud enough. Of course, something that we don't recognise now.、Mm. We think of Romeo and Juliet as this big score huge, with、yes. huge orchestration and big sounds. Prokofiev went up to stage and listened to the orchestra play it a little bit and sort of didn't say anything in a very Prokofiev fashion. Went away and reorchestrated the whole thing overnight. And all he did was to add these little elements of percussion: bass drum here, a snare drum there. To ground the score in、My、terms of its face structure、yeah. and its climactic point, so it made it easier for the dancers to hear, and that's all it took. And suddenly, everybody said, "Yes, Maestro, we could hear it." <laughs> all it—I it, mean, it's, it's an impressive story overnight. Is, but all he did、is. was to add a few bass drum here and there. But they are ingenious strokes. I'm so glad you mentioned a that story and b the bass drum because just sitting in the audience last night, when those thumps come in, they do get you in the sort of sternum here. But also very very low brass tuba bass trombone,、mm. very low brass sounds with the bass drum, adding this sort of. Incredible weight and darkness to the score. Indeed, and it often happens in moments when you don't expect it.、Mm. Expect the depths of the orchestra sound, because、mm. so, for example, the, the the use of the amazing combination of contrabassoon, 
tuba and double bassist and bass clarinet in the moment with Friar Lawrence, for example, this yes. sort of meant to be very holy setting. Ecclesiastical. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it just it just gives you that foresight that mm-hmm. how the story's going to end. But you get taken along on this dramatic journey, but without knowing it. And that's the power of music for me. It is the power of music, absolutely. And talking about the power of music, Jonathan, I'm looking at your list here of pieces that you've chosen for us to enjoy. And the first piece is, in fact, from this ballet, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, uh, The Death of Juliet. Is there a reason you chose this particular part of the ballet to share with us? It is absolutely that power of music and the universality of it. Interestingly, when this ballet was premiered in Prokofiev's time, it actually was premiered with a happy ending. Um, Friar Lawrence comes to save the day at the very end. Oh, dear. Indeed. Um, but of course, the Soviets lapped it up. Yeah, they yeah. would at that time. Um, and there was there was much tribulation of, you know, we've got to honour Shakespeare and everything. So, of course, they reverted back to the original ending. Prokofiev didn't change a note. And it's that same C major gloriousness that comes at the end, which we're going to hear now. And to me, it's how music could speak in... You, you, it depends on the perspective from which you listen. Um, and that could speak in so many ways. And to me, that that real power um, of music that could speak in so many different directions, it's a really powerful moment in this ballet. I'm so amazed you told us that because you're saying that what we're going to hear is exactly the same music as Prokofiev used when it had a happy ending. Yes. Here, we know it to be very tragic. Indeed. But you hear the melody. It's C major. Mm. It's a, it, but it's a sadder C major you yes. ever hear, <laughs> and if you listen to the to the ending of it, that cadence where it goes from an E flat minor chord to an F sharp chord, resolving into a C major chord, it there is a, actually a long range trajectory of this, in that it's the same tonality that ends Bernstein's West Side Story with the C and the F sharp. Good grief! And it also points to me about the influence that music, but ballet music, has in the development of music in general.
Jonathan, what you told us about that piece before we listened to it made a huge difference to listening to that, uh, The Death of Juliet from Romeo and Juliet Prokofiev's Ballet. And it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Jonathan Lowe, who is here conducting uh, Romeo and Juliet and another ballet, which I'll talk about in a moment. But, you know, Jonathan, I'd like to know what attracted you to ballet, because it says here you are without doubt the greatest ballet conductor we have in the UK, which is quite something to say. But there must have been something that attracted you to ballet as opposed to, say, the normal concert repertoire or even the opera repertoire. It's incredibly flattering, really, that line. Um, and, um, <laughs> well, enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> while, while it lasts. Um, yeah, no, um, I fell into ballet, really, um, after music college as a young conductor, as we all do. You go around doing competition, you're doing, you go around doing auditions. Um, and I auditioned for this fellowship with Birmingham Royal Ballet. And I got the job and I stayed with the company for two years. And it opened my eyes to the world of music making that actually incredibly no music college in the world specialises in or has a focus on. And to think that in the UK alone we have over 500 performances of ballet with live orchestra, that no conservatoires in the world has a specialist branch even in ballet conducting is is quite astonishing. Hmm. Um, And through my introduction to it through Birmingham, um, they got me into a world where music and conducting isn't everything in the theatre, which sometimes could feel like that in in opera, where the maestro comes into a room and say, this is my interpretation of Verdi, of Wagner, of Mozart. Whereas in ballet, the interpretation of the music goes very much hand in hand with the choreography, with the production, and excitingly with every individual dancer who dances it. And so it really is a collaborative art form, and that for me is a huge attraction because well, one takes the pressure away from the maestro a little bit to say this doesn't have to be all about you. But also it gives you that extra frisson that every night is different. And if the connection between music and dance is tight, then every night could have that new energy that is something that has never happened in rehearsals before. Mm-hmm. But you talk about um, every night, but you also how do you deal with the change of casts because you've got two or three casts in the lead roles. And there must surely be little nuances, or is everybody so well rehearsed with Veronica's choreography that they can just switch and follow you easily? And the beauty lies in the fact that it's more than just the little nuances. It comes from such basics as this cast is taller than the other, oh, yes. or this yes. cast is younger than the other. So they have and they're different training and a different technique, and so that big thing that we all talk about in ballet, tempo, Mm -hmm. the sense of time is different simply through those fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, how they feel and interpret a role like Romeo and Juliet and their characters characterization of it makes all the difference to how you pace the score. And the best way to deal with that is to spend time in the studio with them. Um, Often ballet conductors go in the studio and feel that oh, I, I'm conducting the piano, I'm not conducting an orchestra, and in the ballet studio, rightly, they have so many things to think about other than the music. So you go in and do your conducting, <laughs> and then nobody says anything to you, and then they give you a thank you at the end, and you go, yep, see you later. Oh, um, really? and, and that's absolutely fine, because it affords you the time to observe. You observe how they say, the, a Romeo and a Juliet, how they deal with each other, how their dynamic is and how they respond to rehearsal notes. And you get a sense of their personality. 
and you get a sense over spending a week with them how they behave on a Monday to compare to how they behave on a Friday when they've had four days of warming up already, right, right. Um, and how they really go for something and what it looks like and feels like when they go for it. All those information you then take on, and then when it comes to conducting the show, you retain that and you go, oh yeah, I remember this Juliet likes to take time. I remember that when she's really on her legs, she will take more time, and so you're prepared. And you're preparing the orchestra through a little arsenal that you develop over your career about how your physicality is when you prepare for a corner that may be different to go, ladies and gentlemen, they're going to take more time here. <laughs> and then you find those moments that respects the music yes, for them to take course, time. And all of this is no different to accompanying an opera singer or a virtuoso violinist when they could be different every night. And they afforded their own interpretation of the music. But then the orchestra also has to be on its toes to navigate and to watch you because they can't see what's going on on stage. They need to be on their toes for these difficult corners that might come along unexpectedly. And it's exactly that point you make that they can't see what's going on on stage that's mm. different and unique to ballet. That in opera, in musical theatre, in concert, an orchestra could hear what the soloists are doing. The conductor in ballet is the only conduit between the music and the dance. And therefore, you develop these little nuggets of <laughs> skills, if you like, yes, um, to, yes. to warn the orchestra. And also, it's about choosing the right moments to help that you don't want to be pulling out the music in the middle of a phrase. You want to be doing it at a moment where it feels right, a comma in the phrasing, for example. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, you could prepare the orchestra, maybe you could tele literally do a telegraph gesture in your left hand and stick your hand and say, ladies and gentlemen, something is about to happen. <laughs> um, and and, and then that, that keeps them on the toes too. So yes. every night is fresh. So they're not just doing the same thing again and again. But regarding tempo, as you said, you always talk about tempo uh, with ballet. Um, is your tempo pretty well steady for the whole run? You've discussed what sort of tempo. There will be changes, like you've just said. But basically, you stick to tempos that have been decided upon. Yes, indeed. And it's about landing the tempo within the ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, and within that, there are, there are shades of grey. It depends on the choreography, depends on the steps. Um, so, for example, in uh, Veronica Paper's production, Romeo and Juliet, some tempi are a little bit different this time around compared to last time. In moments when it's acting, when Veronica and I in, in the studio have had the pleasure, actually, of working with her and discussed um, certain moments when, oh, maybe we just need to tighten this a little bit and, and accelerate the music a little. And she's been wonderful in being receptive to new ideas. So some things are different, but certain dancing steps, um, moments, then those we have to be within the ballpark because the steps have a tempo and have an energy in it mm -hmm. that requires the music to be within that region. And they also need that sort of uh, security that they know Indeed. you're going to be okay with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Let's have another piece of music, Jonathan. And here we have Rafe Vaughan-Williams, one of my favorite English composers, just by the way, Whither Must I Wander from Songs of Travel. Worlds away from ballet, what was your reason for choosing this? I've always had a love for the English art song ever since I moved to the UK from Hong Kong as a youngster and also poetry. And this setting of the poem by Robert Louis Stevenson evokes that British countryside that I grew to love. I spent a lot of time, I did my training at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester and I lived on the verge of the Peat District and the talk of heather and birds and all of that always feels like home. I could smell the countryside when I hear this um, song. But also it's the idea of travel mm -hmm. and um, 
a, a fairly nomadic life that conductors lead. Um, there's something really moving about hearing um, the poetry set with that beautiful music that really moves me and gives me that meaning um, of this song.
Bryn Terfel there, a noble baritone, I think, um, singing that song by Rafe Vaughan Williams from Songs of Travel, Whither Must I Wander, words by Robert Louis Stevenson, and the second choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, the conductor Jonathan Lowe, who's in Cape Town conducting Romeo and Juliet, and you must go and see it. And if you don't like ballet, close your eyes and listen to the orchestra. It's such a treat. Um, you spoke very passionately there about England, and I know that's your home, although you say you lead a nomadic life. But when did you leave Hong Kong? Tell me a little bit about your background. Did your, Do you come from a musical family? Not at all. Um, in fact, my parents, when they were listening to Tchaikovsky's Roman Juliet, I remember it very clearly that that incredible sword fight moment in that overture, my dad said, what, what is this music? It's just carnage. Um, carnage? Did he use the word carnage? <laughs> yeah, I th- oh, I, in, in Cantonese, of course. Um, oh, but yes. uh, but uh, I moved from Hong Kong, uh, where I was born, to the UK age 15. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And I went to Went to, went to boarding school, went to university. Um, I was an organ scholar at the University of Oxford um, and then went to um, Manchester to do my conducting studies. And it's that duality of culture um, that I've always found quite interesting within oneself, but also with people that I meet on my nomadic travels. Mm-hmm. And I think what the, the role of music that has played in my own upbringing, not even a career, but how, because I did music as a youngster in Hong Kong, I went to a school that took music incredibly seriously. So much so that um, every year there will be a music festival in the city and the school orchestra would compete in it with five other elite schools, elite in terms of music. And in the weeks, and I mean weeks, two, maybe two and a half, running up to the festival, where we only have to play two movements from two separate symphonies, we would be out of lessons for the entire duration of the period. I wouldn't touch a book for two weeks, (laughs) and we'd rehearse day in, day out, every day, 10 to 5, on just those two movements. And so really, I got a sense of what it was like, I was a horn player, within the orchestra, a well-drilled and literally well-drilled um, re- rehearsal an orchestra felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with all that musical background, and in Hong Kong, unlike in Britain, for example, music is cool for the youngsters. You go to a concert, it's full of 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. I, as a early-age hormonal teenager with my friends, would prowl the CD shops and would look at full scores standing at bus stops and it was a cool thing to do because <laughs> really? it was you were cultured, you yeah. were westernised, and so when oh, I oh that's interesting yeah that's interesting. So when I came to the UK, music was a really useful language for mm. me to have that connection with the local boys because I went to a boys' school, and for me music will always play that part not only in have a role in my career but a role in my own life in that it was the initial window that opened me to this new life in the West. What made you want to become a conductor? That's an interesting question, and people often ask me that, and I don't always have a very satisfactory answer in myself, which is not a great start in an interview. But <laughs> um, it's, I think it's, it's reflecting on it, referring back to that time in Hong Kong and that school orchestra, that the conductor of the school orchestra could have this connection with the orchestra without saying anything, that I could be sitting right at the back of the orchestra in the horn section, and I could feel what he's thinking. I could feel 
not only in terms of the music and the and, and the emotions he's bringing out from the music, but in terms of whether he's pleased with the result or whether he's upset with something, and that human connection, unspoken, is so powerful that it got me to think, oh, I quite like to try that one day. And of course, listening to music all the time, I started to wave my arms along at it, thinking, "Oh, this is this is quite. There is something that I could almost touch when I'm listening to the music, and I could feel it. You know, in visual arts, you could you could hold, you could you could if if you have the money, you could hold that really expensive piece of artwork. You could feel the paint. In music, because it's an art form that exists in time and it's not materialistic, you can't f- f- feel it. But conducting comes close." And for me, that was an incredibly addictive drug that I that I had to go and find, and <laughs> I guess that w- that was what drew me into the dark heart of it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. No one's ever described it like that before in all the conductors I've spoken to. So that you can feel the music; it's almost tangible. Yes, like clay in your hands. Indeed, if you if you're molding clay, possibly that mm. sort of that sort of sensation. And it's very much like that when it comes to. Conducting an orchestra, mm. that you could, f- <laughs> you could feel the musicians, you could <laughs> yeah. feel the sound they're coming mm-hmm. uh, out of. Colin Davis always sp- spoke about conducting as you are holding a bird, that you're not holding it so tight that you suffocate it, but you're not holding it so loose that you let it fly away. And that, for me, is an incredibly powerful image and a way into describing to people what it's like to feel an orchestra and to feel the music and to make it tangible. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Colin Davis because he is one of my favorite British conductors. I've always had huge admiration for him. So you obviously worked with him. It was just through masterclasses, and you know, I, oh, okay. I, I came, I came um, onto the scene, if you like, at such a late stage of his life and. Um, but yeah, any any gems of wisdom that he could pass on, you retain and you remember for a very long mm-hmm. time. Do you have a conductor that inspires you when you're listening to music? When you're listening to, say, the symphonic repertoire? It's an interesting it's, one. I think it depends a little bit on the repertoire. Well, it does, doesn't um, it? True. And but I think the best, the, the I would say, I wouldn't say the best. Um, the conductors that I admire the most are the conductors that find the best balance between being in control and letting the musicians take charge. Like the bird story. Yes. Like, and, and like the Bernard Hiding and the Claudia Bardos of this world, mm-hmm. where they have a genuine respect and a humility that they say to Yorkshire, look, I know you know how this piece goes and I'm going to give you that room to suggest things and to, and, and to say, this is how I think the phrase is going to go. This is how I think the sound's going to be and I'm going to let you do that. And in moments when it matters, I can then gently steer the course of it. And both these maestros, uh, Bernard Hiding and Claudio Bardo, who I mentioned, they're not, especially towards the end of the career, particularly flamboyant um, gestural conductors mm. on the podium. Mm. But through these tiny gestures and a little look here and the smallest flick here, they can really alter the course of a symphony. And for me, that is conducting in its purest form. Well, we're going to take another break. I want to pick up on some of those things you said, uh, Jonathan, but we've got Bach coming up now from the St. Matthew Passion, one of the monuments, isn't it, St. Matthew Passion? And what have you chosen and why? Um, this is the aria Geptiumea Meine Jesum Vida um, from the St. Matthew Passion, and it comes after um, the Judas betrayal. The Matthew Passion has always had a really 
seminal role in my musical life. At university, we would perform this piece every other year. And in my three years there,、um, I was lucky to catch it in my first year and in my third year, and I had then subsequently conducted it. And it's that sense of actually what what I mentioned earlier about musicians having that connection with themselves and suggesting things.、Mm-hmm. At university, the music making was always like that because you're making music with your friends, and you're always having those connection with people, making friends through playing and through singing. And I have really fond memories of singing and playing in the Matthew Passion, of hearing and seeing how people communicate and suggest things, and someone else could then respond by, "Oh, I'm going to do this ornament, and I'll do this ornament in return." And this recording,、um, very much, you can hear that in in the music making、um, of it, and、um, and I think also、um, the Matthew Passion, just like you mentioned, as a monumental. Work of art、mm-hmm. um, has all those things about music that we all love—the、um, power, the passion, and the emotion, the drama—but also an incredibly specific colouring in it. So in this aria, you could hear the pieces of silver being thrown back、um, through those violin scales that comes、mm. up and down the fingerboard. And for me, the fact that music—I mean, Richard Strauss said. He could describe a teapot in music if he if you asked him if you paid him enough,、um, <laughs> and therefore the fact that music could be so specific at、mm-hmm. the same time as being so suggestive and abstract, it's an incredibly powerful universal language. <laughs> Thank、you. 
A reminder there of that great work, the St. Matthew Passion by Bach, and another choice of my guest, Jonathan Lowe. Who was performing that, Jonathan? That was the Ensemble Pygmalion, conducted by Raphael Puchon. Okay. Now, I was thinking, you said that you were talking about the St. Matthew Passion, that you've sung in it, you've played in it, you've conducted it. That must be a challenge to conduct, because unlike the ballet with the narrative of... Well, the St. Matthew Passion has a narrative, but it's a Baroque piece with choruses and arias. So it must be a challenge to keep the tension going in a piece like the St. Matthew Passion. Indeed, and it was a challenge in a different way in that, like you say, that some of the chorales, it, it's, it stops the narrative. Mm. But that's not, I think, the entire point of the Passion either. It wasn't just about the story. It was about those moments of reflection on the story. Mm-hmm. And those chorales actually play a really crucial role in them, particularly remembering that when the piece was first written, those chorales would have been sung by the congregation. And so it's allowing the audience and also the performers that moment to take a breath and actually remember that this is a spiritual experience as well as a dramatic one. Mm -hmm. And also allow the musicality and the virtuosity of the players and the singers to come through and for us all to enjoy that artistry away from the drama a little bit. And so... Yes, there is an element of dramatic pacing involved, but unlike in Romeo where it's propelling the story and allowing moments to stop, it's propelling the story but then taking detours into those spiritual realms. Yeah. And I like the word reflection. It's all about reflection, really, in those arias and chorales, isn't it? Indeed. In a piece like this in Matthew Passion. I want to go back um, briefly to Romeo and Juliet and to your work with Veronica. When you come to a place like South Africa, you don't know what the choreography is all about. You don't know the acoustics of the theatre. You must have to come with a very open mind and, as you say, work very closely with Veronica to see what she wants and how you can adapt your musical interpretation to that. So there's a lot to sort of discover when you come to a new country, a new Opera House, a new pit, all those sorts of things. And what an exciting thing that is to do. Is it? Um, it's <laughs> I thought it would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there is a certain element of trepidation, but it's the joy of it in that one could get drawn into a comfort zone of, I go to this pit, I know it. But, you know, you, you have this career once mm-hmm. and you can only discover something new for the first time. You can only do that once. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is incredibly valuable. Um, and going back to discovering the ballet, of course, we get we always ask for the video beforehand. Um, and in this case, actually, it was a really interesting video in that I think it was the video made from the last performance in 1986. Wow. So it's a video taken from a VHS tape. Um, and everything's very grainy. The, the, the vet resolution is very small. Um, and so, yes, I got a feel of it, mm-hmm. but I didn't get any of the detail at all. And so when it comes to, say, booking conductors myself to come to Northern Ballet, I, I always insist on a certain amount of studio time. And I insist on that for myself when I go to a different place. So a very minimum two weeks beforehand for you to have that time, like you say, to work with Veronica and to observe and to be part of the organization and get a feel of it. And 
on this occasion, I also had the opportunity to go and see the pit, see the theatre. Uh, the orchestra have been very generous, especially from management with their time from the library to come and talk to me. And, and so we were able to address some of the issues and, and actually anticipate some of the problems we may have. And in the end, what I understand, the get-in from the orchestra into the pit was relatively smooth. Everybody had plenty of space to play in. So, you know, that, that, was, that, that was smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. But that preparation time beforehand is incredibly important. And also, like you say, the open mind so that you are able to come and have conversations that is flexible. Yeah. You're not here to say, this is what I insist on having. Mm-hmm. Um, mandolins, for example, in the score, yes. with um, Prokofiev writes for two numbers with mandolin accompaniments, and whether you turn up to a different place and you go, do you have eight professional mandolin players who can play this? <laughs> no, you don't. Okay, what are the other options? Um, similarly, in this ballet, um, actually Prokofiev writes for an offstage band that reflects some of those crowd scenes mm-hmm. and we're making a finding a way to make that work um, because of the confine of the wings you don't have enough space to put a brass band in front that sort of thing so flexibility but f- with flexibility comes with joy and comes with um, open-mindedness and frank conversations and all those things are what makes one's career really exciting that you can make those connections with people and organizations and part of the challenge, Jonathan, I think you faced here was that some of the performances, you had to record the whole score, didn't you? Um, so that it would be played to give the orchestra and you a bit of a break. So that must also have its, shall we say, tricky moments. Yes, very much so. <laughs> and like we mentioned at the start, with an orchestra um, that really needed to see the overarching shape of the ballet a few times before we go in the pit, mm. um, the fact that we had to do the recording and really focus on numbers by numbers and even sections by sections within the numbers meant that we got to know the piece very well. Um, <laughs> very but quickly. <laughs> indeed. But also, um, but, but it, it wasn't until the stage rehearsals when we really started to get the flow of it, going from one thing, one scene to another. Um, so that was the challenge. But of course, a show is never its final incarnation until later on in the run. Over the course of the performances, things change, interpretations develop, things become slicker, or there are moments when people want to have more time in. And so to make a recording to cater for all of that before we'd even gone on stage was difficult. I'm sure it, it was, was challenging. Especially after what you've said about the run-up to these things. Now, as we approach the end of our little chat, Jonathan, you are here. The ballet, the Romeo and Juliet ballet, ends on the 28th of August. But then there's Ikigai. Just tell me a little bit about that, because that's three different ballets, is it? Um of which you're conducting one. It is indeed. So it's it's an incredibly adventurous and ambitious program, actually, um, by Cape Town City Ballet, programmed by Debbie Turner, the um, CEO and director, um, because it combines three pieces, like you say, which are very different. Mm. So um, we've got a new creation by Kenneth Tyndall, who's actually the resident choreographer at Northern Ballet. And we've got a piece by Netherlands Dance Theatre, um, a, a, a Yuri Killian um, piece. Um, and then the piece that I'm conducting is Le Patineur, a Frederick Ashton masterpiece, yes. and very much part of the classical Absolutely. canon. So um, to go from the newest to one of the heritage pieces within the same program is an incredible ask of the dancers because you are your body language, your movement language is, is very different. Um, Does all this happen on one night? Do you see the three so. productions on one night? Absolutely. Oh, gosh. And with small oh. intervals in between, the dancers have to go from this very Ashtoness, everything's very proper, 
in placing the positions, nothing is too overextended, to the very much contemporary language mm-hmm. um, that is that is quite hard on the body in in, in different ways. <laughs> I, I have an incredible amount of respect for the dancers and also the programming. Not a lot of the companies in the world would be brave enough to put on three pieces which are so different. But what a treat it is going to be for the audience to see um, the remarkably diverse languages and, and skills and talent in the company it in sounds, this one evening. It sounds amazing. Ikigai, it's called. And that's going to run from the 17th to the 28th of August. Uh, almost concurrent with uh, Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? Indeed, yes. In a sense. Gosh, you'll have to remember which ballet you're conducting. When you Never mind to... me. I have the score in front of me. What about the dancers? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> yes, the dancers. Um, Jonathan, it's been great talking to you, and your enthusiasm is incredible and infectious and tangible, and I really hope you come back. Thank you very much. Would you ever consider coming back to conduct a symphony season, a symphony concert, or would you prefer ballet? Absolutely. Um, I, in fact, I, I was talking to one of the players about this. Um, ballet takes time in mm. one's calendar because you want that time in the in the studio, but also the runs are quite long. Yes. But when I've been able to, I'm still keeping my concert career going, so I they know where I am. Right. <laughs> they know your number. Indeed. Your email address. That was uh, Jonathan Lowe, who's conducting Romeo and Juliet here with the orchestra on top form, thanks to him, and also Ikigai, which opens on the 17th. So go along and see them, because I can assure you they're a treat. I saw Romeo and Juliet and absolutely loved it. And Jonathan, your last piece of music is by Charles Hubert Perry, Songs of Farewell. Well, farewell from the program, but not from Cape Town. (laughs) The choral repertoire has had a really important part in my life, both musically, but also just spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first bit of conducting regular podium time that I had was as an organ scholar at Oxford. And it was conducting choirs twice a week, we were performing essentially in a service twice a week. Um, and this repertoire became a real passion of mine. Um, not just because of the sheer beauty, but because it's not heard enough outside of the English cathedrals and churches. And it's absolutely stunning, gorgeous music. Um, The Songs of Farewell are a set of motets, if you like, but none of it, apart from this one, particularly religious. Um, It's all spiritual texts um, that one could take the time to reflect and meditate upon. And for me, this is a piece that always calms me down and takes me on a journey, but also reminds these terribly egotistical conductors that (laughs) all is vanity. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan Lowe, thanks for sharing so many lovely thoughts with us and best of luck for the rest of your stay and come back. Thank you for having me, Ronnie.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.